what we're talking about today is the gospel. Today we have the first time the gospel is preached since Jesus. Peter lets loose after Pentecost and preaches this come to Jesus message in which about 3,000 people get saved. As I began to read it, I saw that Peter, and probably unintentionally, weaved three different perspectives through it as he told it. Which is why I think it became so impactful for the dangerous church. And, and what, what those... Well, first, let me, go, let me go ahead and give you the big idea. What we've been doing every week is saying, here's the one big idea for the text, and then we kind of unpack that. The big idea is this. There's a place for your notes. The dangerous church was a church that was daily. In other words, it wasn't a Sunday deal. It wasn't a community group deal. It wasn't a, you know, an hour a day when I have my quiet time deal. But the dangerous church was a church that was daily and holistically. Meaning they didn't compartmentalize their lives. Meaning they didn't have the spiritual life going on over here, the job time going over here, the family time going over here, and the recreational time. Holistically, meaning the gospel daily and holistically, completely, okay, transformed their lives. So the dangerous church was a church that was daily and holistically transformed by the gospel of God. Read that one more time. The dangerous church was a church that was daily and holistically transformed by the gospel of God. Got that? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and just read the text straight through right now. You can follow along in your Bible, or I think they're going to put it on the screen. And then after that, we're going to look at these three different perspectives that Peter actually draws out. So starting in Acts 2, verse 22. We're skipping verse 14 through 21. Verse 14 through 21 is basically Peter stands up and he gives a, uh, a he, he preaches a prophecy from the prophet Joel and basically saying what Joel said so many thousands of years ago is coming to pass or hundreds of years ago is coming to pass right now. So we're going to jump past that to verse 22. And Peter says, people of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices." My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers and sisters, we all know that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath, promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of this Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did he, his body, see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Set up my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Therefore, 
Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So, so here's where we're going to go ahead and start off with. Three misconceptions of the gospel. The first one, and they kind of build on each other. The first one is that the gospel is a one-time message that we respond to for salvation only. What we see in Western Christianity is that when you think of the gospel, the gospel is a call that some preacher gives. We respond to, to or cross the line of salvation, and then we leave that place and functionally act like atheists. Are you with me? Meaning that the gospel is not much more than a call, and that's it. So usually when that happens, number two, it's the, it, it, it is or is viewed as the elementary teaching of Christianity to be left for the deeper things. So when the gospel is nothing more than a call that we respond to only, because it, it does contain that, but when that's all it is, then usually it's reduced or dumbed down to something elementary that we hope to leave for the deeper things. I grew up in a charismatic church. This was the popular way of thinking. We responded to the gospel, but then as we got more mature, we wanted the deep things, which usually can, took no thought at all. You with me? But... But that's just how it's viewed. And so when it's viewed like that, the third thing is that the gospel is reduced to a scripted message that we need to have memorized for altar calls or leaving somebody across the line, whatever the line is. And this is the big misconception of the gospel in Western Christianity. And we see that every day, that our, our jobs are ruled by whatever. Our home life is ruled by emotions, maybe by the way our parents did it and set the example for us. Our, the way we parent our kids is usually set by, I don't know, Oprah or whoever. But then over here, when we go to church, our life there is ruled by the gospel at best. Okay, so here's what the gospel is. Rather than being a one-time message, it is the message that is the centrality of all of life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, here's what we know. If you've read Paul, we know that if you turn to every one of his books, it's just not one sentence that says Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? Paul talked about many things. He talked about sex. He talked about church planning. He talked about marriage and relationships. He talked about all kinds of things. So we so this is kind of a problem text because we know he didn't just talk about Christ crucified. But, but here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I can't talk to you very long about social justice. I can't talk to you very long about sex. I can't talk to you very long about marriage, how to raise your kids, how to act in society without tying it back to the gospel. Because the gospel is the thing that runs all of life. Number two, rather than the gospel being the elementary teaching of Christianity, it is the agent of change for all of life. 
Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, there we go. It just has to do with salvation. Those, those verses aren't going to be up there, right? But see, here's how the Bible talks about salvation. It's, it's very different than how we talk about it. The Bible says that we are saved. Then it says those who are saved are also at the same time being saved. And at the same time will one day be saved. But what it's talking about is an initial salvation in which Christ calls us out and we are saved. Then uh, sanctification, the journey of sanctification, and then total justification. And here's what Paul is saying, that the gospel is the power for all of that. There is no deeper teaching. It is the gospel that makes all that happen. And then number three, rather than it simply being a scripted message for altar calls, it is the driving force for all of life. This is, this is what we believe about our mission, right? We believe that when we go out and we live Christ socially, that in that the world will see it. It's not just a message we have to say. It is that, but it's not only that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 23, I do it all. We can think of anything we want to to put in that all. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. D.A. Carson wrote a book called The Cross and Christian Ministry. And he quoted a Mennonite uh, writer. And he said this about the Mennonites. He said, the first generation loved the gospel. I don't know where we can find ourselves here. The second generation, probably right here, assumed the gospel. And the third generation forgot and hated the gospel. And when we see Western Christianity today and the way the gospel is treated, I believe we're stuck somewhere in these people, us included, or the way, if you look at the way we think, is people who assume it. Because it's just some elementary thing that we can leave for the deeper things. So here's how we're going to break down what uh, Peter is talking about. There is this, I'm going to use two words. They're going to kind of sound big, but they're not. Um, there's this idea called multi-perspectivalism. Yeah, right? Okay, let's, really easy. Multi means what? Many? Perspectival perspectives. Many perspectives. If you live in a home with more than one people, you get it every day. Okay? Yeah. Multi-perspectivalism. And well, the, I, that idea is essentially this. That in order to get the fullness of a thing, of an idea, of a concept, of an experience, you have to look through these multiple grids to really get the fullness of it. So what some theologians have done, and I, I hold to this, what some theologians done have broke that down. And they said what we believe is that you can take those, whether it's 20 different perspectives, and you can narrow it down to three different perspectives. And they call it tri-perspectivalism. They believe that's kind of the Trinitarian stamp on everything. That if you have a hundred different perspectives, if you narrow it down, you'll come up with three different perspectives. And we know this intrinsically. Think about a steak for a minute, okay? If I were to set a steak in front of you, and I were to say, you can smell it and you can look at it, but you can't taste it. Number one, it's torture and wrong. Number two, unless you're a vegetarian, pretend it's like portobello mushroom, I guess. But, but you don't get the fullness of it, do you? Now, you've never thought, you know, the triperspectival of that steak. But you know that. You know to get the fullness of it, you've got to have all three of those. Or what if I said, okay, here's the deal. You can taste it and you can look at it, but you can't smell it. Well, now all you do is fill your stomach because most of your taste is in your, is in your smell. So we know that. Let's, let's go a little deeper. Let's go, to, let's, let's go to sex. Okay, the Bible says there are three ways to experience sex. Not at different times together. Is physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And that's spiritually being under God's blessing of marriage. Right? 
And in the world, sex is, for the most part, experienced physically and emotionally. And so you create two kinds of... Sex becomes either a physical transaction that feels good or something that creates a bunch of uh, emotional whores that continue to come back just to get an emotional fix that doesn't last very long. But, but, when sex is experienced the way the Bible says through the three perspectives, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, the word the Bible actually uses, the word dode. The Bible says when you experience sex through these avenues, there is the mingling of souls. That's not to say that sex isn't good, doesn't feel good outside of marriage. But what it's saying is that you will never get the fullness of what it was supposed to be if you would have experienced it the way God set it apart. So, let's go to the triperspectivalism of the gospel. And this is in your notes. The gospel is this, three things. It's historical. It's theocentric. And it's personal. The gospel is historical, it's theocentric, and it's personal. So, so, so what I've done is you will notice below that you have, a, you have a clump of scriptures, right? What I have done is what Peter did was weave those perspectives together throughout the entire text. So what I've attempted to do, and not perfectly by any means, what I've attempted to do was pull out all the historical part, and put it, so we're going to read the historical part, then pull out all the theocentric part, put it down there, and then pull out all the personal stuff and put it down there. So the gospel is historical, theocentric, and personal. Let's go ahead and read the, the historical chunk. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. This man was handed over to you, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Here's what Peter is saying. This happened historically. This is a fact. It happened. It's not a bunch of theories. It's not a, this is a nice story so we can lead someone to our perspective of God. Peter is saying this historically happened. We cannot leave that route that Jesus was a historical man. He died historically and he raised from the dead historically. This is not debatable. It is what it is. Jesus Christ, what happened to him in life is a historical fact. Then Peter goes back. He goes, let me show you how historical it is. He jumps back to David. He says, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And so now this is how Peter explains this. He says he's going to use a historical argument. Brothers and sisters, we all know that the patriarch David died. So we know that David couldn't be talking about himself. And was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But we also know that God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. So the first thing, or or entwined throughout the scripture, is Peter says, look, before we can build anything on it, what I've got to show you is this whole foundation that Christianity is built on is not a great idea. It's a historical fact. See, here, here, here's the important of that. If, if there is no historical fact to the virgin birth, if, if there is no historical fact to the sinless life, to the death of Christ and to the resurrection, then Jesus was nothing more than an olden day Oprah trying to get us to have better lives. 
Are you with me? If there, if, if, if there is no historical fact to this, then what we believe is subject to relevance. We see that a lot today. Without history, we have no true identity because whatever we base our thing on continues to change based on the way we feel. You with me? So here, here's what I'm going to do with each of them. I'm going to make a little equation. Um, so if you have a theocentric perspective and a personal perspective, but you don't have the historical perspective, what you have is a trajectory gospel with no foundational identity. Meaning what, meaning what we believe is easily changed based on you name it. Meaning that the gospel falls prey to relevance and preference. Meaning that the gospel is dominated by my rights, my paradigms, my feelings, and my emotions as opposed to my emotions, my paradigms, and my feelings being subject to the historical truth of it. Does that make sense? Okay, so why is, is history important? This is in your notes. The historical perspective of the gospel establishes our true identity. Without history, there is no identity. History is the shaping factor in our lives. It is where we all come from. It is what sets the trajectory in our life. History informs us of the things that we need to fix. Right? right? We've, we've heard that old saying that if we don't learn from history, we're destined to repeat it. History lets us know, and we all know this, come on, those of you who are married. I mean, I'm, right? When, when you enter into a, a, a marriage union, you, you're not just marrying each other. You're marrying each other's history, right? You're marrying the sins of your parents and your grandparents. And that history informs us so that we can hopefully not pass that along to our children. But the other thing history does, more importantly, is that it lets us know the heritage that we come from and the responsibility we have to uphold that. So, so like for instance, us as a church, ANC, we are, what, 15 months old? Right? Now, that's kind of neat when you look at what we've been able to do, who we've been able to serve, right? But, but, but the problem with only being 15 months old is we have no historical orthodoxy that grounds us. We have no history that created our identity. We're kind of free to change with relevance in time if we keep it that way. But so, yes, according to the IRS and according to whatever, a, and by name, ANC is 15 months old. But, but I, I dare to say we have about an 8,000-year history as a church that was conceived in the mind of God before time began. And it, and it goes something like this. In, in 1450 BC, Moses begins by telling us our history. He says, we were created in perfect harmony, in perfect rhythm with God, with perfect shalom, perfect peace, perfect love, perfect drink without drunkenness, perfect food without gluttony, perfect marriage without in-laws. I'm totally kidding. I, I love my in-laws. I'm so kidding. Okay. But, but everything was just, everything was perfect. And it moved in this rhythm. And then Moses lets us know that sin entered the world and fractured everything. And we spun out of control. By Genesis 3.15, we have the first gospel presentation. The good news that God is going to send somebody to crush the head of the serpent and put everything back to this perfect rhythm. By Genesis 12, God comes to a man named Abram. And he says, I'm going to create a people through you. And those, those 
people aren't just going to be my nation, but through those people, I'm going to call a people to myself. By Genesis 22, he says, I'm going to restore to Abraham. He says the same thing. I'm going to restore everything back to me. Then the rest of the Old Testament is a plethora of prophecies, warnings, and promises that God is going to send his chosen one into history and begin this movement that restores all of creation back to him. Then, then this old peasant Jewish man, not old really, comes. You guys might have heard of him. His name is Jesus. And he doesn't have this Jewish lingo anymore. He has this global language. And then he dies and resurrects and sets in motion this global movement of restoring creation back to himself. By Acts 2, Brandon talked about this last week. We have the tongues of nations, and then the, then the, the apostles are sent out. By Acts 8, we have our first non-Jewish convert, the Ethiopian eunuch. By Acts 10, Cornelius, who is the commander of the Roman Empire and considered unclean to the Jews. Here's the gospel preached comes to faith and his whole family is baptized. By 39 AD, Saul becomes Paul and embarks on an intense gospeling of the Gentiles. By 52 AD, Thomas goes to India. 54 AD, Paul starts his third missionary journey. And you know what he finds out? That this law that was given to the Jews wasn't just given to the Jews. In fact, Paul tells us he found that it was written on the hearts of all humanity as if God was interested in everybody. By 174 AD, the first Christians are reported in Austria. By 280 AD, we have the first written knowledge of rural churches emerging from northern Italy. By 350 AD, 31.7 million people claim Christ as their king. By 432, Patrick heads to Ireland, probably meets a guy that was a hat maker, and begins one of the, begins one of the biggest church planning movements to date. By 900 AD, the missionaries reach Norway. Those are my people. By 1200 AD, the Bible is now available in 22 different languages. Why? Because the gospel historically cannot be stopped. By 1498, the first Christians are reported in Kenya. By 1630, an attempt is made to establish a mission among the Mesa Indians. By 1860, the free Methodist church was founded with a heart to seek racial equality and show justice to the marginalized and the lost. Why? Because when the gospel is not just about Sundays, but it's holistically, it impacts the way you view humanity. By 1995, I'm sorry, by 1983, the gospel comes to a young skater punk named Luke Melsa and God saves him and calls him to the ministry. By 1995, a couple by the name of Trey and Ginny Pruitt was being pursued by God and ended up in a church being discipled by the gospel of God. By 1995, that same year, on the other side of the world, Matthew and Sarah are in Morocco, Africa, and were consumed by living the missionary life, though they had no idea what it would look like. By the year 2000, a very young couple, Brandon and Jen Hatmaker, moved to Austin to work for a church. In 2001, Matthew and Sarah felt impressed by God to move from Iowa to Austin to start church planning. In 2003, the gospel of God impressed on Trey Pruitt to a call to ministry. By 2007, at a Shane Claiborne meeting, the gospel of God wrecked Brandon and Jen Hatmaker and interrupted their lives as they had planned. By 2007, God moved on Trey's life to join Brandon. To plant a church, even though Jenny said, I'm not even going to pray about it. See, when the gospel is advancing, nobody can stop it. By 2008, Austin New Church opened its doors to the public. This is our history. We are not just 15 months old. We date all the way back to the beginning because the gospel is faithful and it will move us to where God wants us. Amen? Everything, everything historically 
is about what God is doing through his gospel. So the theocentric perspective, the rest of them are shorter than this. <laughs> I promise. I time myself. Um, these, here we go. These mighty works that God did among you through him, Jesus. Jesus died according to God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He, David, was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne, seeing what was to come. He, David, spoke of the resurrection of this Messiah, that he, Jesus, was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his, Jesus' body, see decay. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see. Here's what David is saying, or Peter, I'm sorry, here's what Peter is saying. What I just told you historically happened, this, this theocentric, theocentric part, David is saying this is why it happened. It happened because everything good and bad under in history is playing perfectly into the hands of of God, and it will not thwart it. Everything is under the control of God. Now, we would say a theocentric perspective of the gospel, no kidding, right? But, but that's not true. See, we all know the gospel is about God, but if you look at Western Christianity, what I think you see more than the gospel being centered around God is that the gospel is centered around self, and God becomes this genie who is out to please me. And so what I think Peter is making a, a, a statement is to say we need to move back to the place where the gospel is theocentric. So here's in your notes. If the, gospel, if the historical perspective of the gospel creates identity, then the theocentric perspective of the gospel gives meaning. In other words, everything that has happened historically was driven by the gospel. That's the what. But the why is for the glory of God. So if the gospel, so here's the equation again. So if the gospel is historical plus personal, but theocentric is left out, we have what has popularly been called the prosperity gospel. Meaning that the gospel and all of life is about me. Meaning that God is not out for his glory, but exists to grant me riches, security, and comfort. And when this doesn't happen, everything begins to unravel. In fact, when you, move the, when you move God away from the centerness of the gospel, what you have is a dumbed-down Bible that I guess just helps you to live your best life now. And that's all it becomes. D.A. Carson said this, the better we know God, the more we will want our existence to revolve around him. And we will see that the only goals and plans that matter are the ones tied to God himself and our eternity with him personal perspective of the gospel. I think that's on the, the backside. This man was handed over to you, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord, our God, will call, repent in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and save yourselves from the corrupt generation. Not only is there the historical perspective and the theocentric perspective, but it takes a very personal action. So, the gospel is not just some neat historical theocentric story, but it is the story that demands a response from everybody. In your notes, 
if the historical perspective of the gospel creates identity and the theocentric perspective of the gospel gives meaning, then the personal perspective of the gospel demands response. The gospel, and here's the thing, here's the thing about the gospel, you cannot be neutral. There is nobody who is neutral to the gospel. You either accept it or you deny it. There is no middle ground. And the gospel demands it, that you have to respond. In other words, the historicity of the gospel gives identity to everything that's happened. The theocentric perspective gives meaning to all that has happened through history. And the personal perspective lands us right in the middle of that history. So, here's the equation again. If the gospel is theological and historical minus personal, if we leave that out, we're stuck with what we call moralistic deism. Right? In other words, I'm saved to act better. And I'm taught growing up, maybe some of you were taught this, maybe some of you had the privilege to not be taught this, but I'm taught that if I don't cuss, if I don't see rated R movies, if I really trust that true love waits, and I, I don't know, obey my parents all the time, then everything is good. Well, those aren't hard to mark off the list. So once I mark them off the list, it's no longer personal. Now, I'm judge looking down at you, telling you how to be better. We, we see this in the Bible a lot. They call them the Pharisees. In fact, the only time Jesus ever talks mean is to these people who remove the personal responsibility from the gospel. There's two, two effects to this. Number one, it creates the de-churched, which we see in our nation. We see people leaving church rapidly because here's what they found out. No matter how many rules I keep, there's something that's still missing. Or it creates Pharisees who don't know any better but to look down and judge you because you're not as good as them. See, when, when we remove the personal perspective of the gospel, what it does is causes us to lean against the cross and saying, get better than you are, rather than kneel at the foot of it and welcome other people to join us. This is why it is important to have all three perspectives because all we have to do, and we do this so often, is leave one out. And then we go off. So, okay, let's, let's, that was a 30,000-foot view of the gospel. Let's bring this home. So what does this look like up close? How does a historical, theocentric, personal gospel apply to us on an individual level? Well, if the historical gospel determines, or the historical perspective determines identity, if your personality is bent towards, maybe you have this personality, you're bent towards just thinking you're a horrible person. You always just think you're just this, this person who is always wrong, always messed up, and you're not worth anything. The historical gospel tells us that this man came from heaven to earth, lived a sinless life, and died in your place and rose from the dead and is now at the right hand of the throne of God making intercession for you. He doesn't do that for a worthless person. However, if you've been like me, and you think, I am pretty good. I, I have figured out how to mark it off the list. The historical gospel says that we were in Adam when he sinned. That our good works are nothing more than filthy rags. Romans says, left to ourselves, we would always choose self over God. So the historical gospel, and there's history that shows it, says that we are not worthy, but he is loving. And this is why he did what he did. So what about the theocentric perspective? What does, that, what does that say to us? See, if you think God saved you to pamper you and make you rich, wealthy, and secure, 
and you need to reread the text because there's not even an example. I, I get some of the stuff that there's an example, but there's not even an example. What about David? He was king. I think his son raped his daughter. Give me all the riches or make me poor, but don't give me that. That's not what the gospel was about. In fact, the call of the gospel will oftentimes ask you to sacrifice the very things we wish God would have saved us for. However, if you think God saved you just to use and abuse you because he's some narcissistic, arrogant punk who's out for his glory. I mean, let me, let me tell you this about the theocentricness of the gospel. Without it, you can never enjoy sex like God meant it. You can never enjoy relationships like God meant it. You can never enjoy life like God meant it when God is not at the center of it. And the proof that he's not narcissistic is he uses us to represent him. Right? The personal perspective. Peter actually gives us three ways. Number one, he says, repent. Right? Now, what Peter was talking about was a one-time thing. Well, I mean, not a one-time thing, but he was calling him initially to repent. But here's what we know about repentance. Repentance is not about saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is about turning around and going a different direction. I think what Peter is calling us to is a daily life of repentance. A life that daily gets up and says, God, I want your way instead of my way. I want your will instead of my will. I want to want what you want. That's repentance. And this is the life that Peter says the gospel calls of us. And it's not neutral. You accept it or you don't. doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means through grace and faith. God helps us live that way. He also says, be baptized. Now, I'm not even going to go, I'm not going to explain that very much. A couple weeks ago, Brandon preached probably the best message I've ever heard on baptism in my life. So if you want to hear what Peter was talking about, go back and listen to that. But let me add conjecture. If you can say, are you adding that? I am. So I'm sorry. But, but, he, but the word baptized actually means submersed. And so after you come to f- faith, I think Peter might be saying daily, what would it be like to submerse ourselves in community? What would it be like to submerse ourselves in the word of God daily? What would it be like to submerse ourselves in a prayer life? I think it would make the repentance a lot easier. Number three, and this is a weird one. This one threw me for a loop. He says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Wait a second. I thought the gospel was about him saving me because I couldn't save me. Here's what Peter is saying, that the call of the gospel is not just from sin and not just to him, but it is to his community. The word generation, what it's talking about there is telling the people to actively and intentionally remove themselves from the way of the world Remove themselves from a materialistic life. Remove themselves from a life that is driven on selfish ambition. Remove themselves from a life that is bent on me. And to save yourself is to change communities. doesn't mean leave your friends, but change your identity. In other words, move to a community that is centered around the mission of God. This is what the historical, theocentric, personal gospel calls us to. So may God confront, interrupt, and transform you with his historical, theocentric, personal gospel so that like the dangerous church, we may be a people who are daily, not just Sundays and community group, and holistically, not just our spiritual life, but everything, transformed by the gospel of God. Let's pray.